This podcast is proudly presented by Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. This podcast is sponsored by Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort, but most importantly, your snacks. Deuter has a history of first ascents and alpine routes. Their head of product development even climbed Everest once in jeans. Hashtag not fake news. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in fit, comfort, and ventilation. So you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting sendy, whether at the crag or in the alpine. Today we're going to talk about Ali. Ali means come on in a way or to encourage. Okay, we are done with the simple and normal uses of Ali. Now let's cut to the chase. LA Outdoor Personal Care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Their rich and repairing ingredients for their skincare collection are inspired by desert landscapes, and their simple and recyclable packaging makes them eco-sustainable. LA commits to protecting the open spaces that we love by partnering with the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. That's LA Outdoor, A-L-L-E-Z. LA Outdoor, made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. This podcast gets support from Gnarly Nutrition, one of the leading protein supplements that tastes way better than they need to because they use quality natural ingredients. So whether you're a working mom who runs circles around your kids on weekends or an unprofessional climber trying to send that 513 in the gym, Gnarly Nutrition has all of your recovery needs. The only question you need to ask yourself is, are you a sucker for anything that tastes like chocolate ice cream? Yeah, me neither. Gnarly Nutrition is designed to enhance your progress and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. Oh, cool. No. Oh, cool. No. Oh, Really? Oh, cool. Who is Otsun? More than prolific crack climbing gloves, Otsun has been making innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance since 1998. Their climbing shoe designs are all original, developed and manufactured in Czech Republic, and 100% gender neutral. Beyond their sticky rubber, Otsun is renowned for their hardware, harnesses, and the biggest, lightest crash pad on the market. Find your new favorite climbing shoes and accessories at Backcountry, Moose Jaw, Camp Saber, and Amazon. This podcast is sponsored by the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. Because you listen to this show, we know that responsible recreation is important to all of you. Increasing visitation and rapid expansion of human-powered recreation has adverse impact to the delicate desert ecosystem. What climbers and other recreationists need are more thoughtful land management plans, which can help minimize the impact of camping and recreating in fragile desert environments. Help protect the places you love to climb by asking the Bureau of land management to better manage recreation. Visit SUA.org that's S-U-W-A slash recreation or text Utah R-E-C to 52886 to get started and protect wild Utah. The Adaptive Climbers Festival returns to the Red River Gorge after a two-year hiatus due to COVID. This October 14th through 16th, join the Adaptive community for their annual multi-day event focused on providing space for climbers with disabilities to climb, learn, and connect. Random shit. Yeah, just like all the organizational shit that you 
Located in the southeastern corner of Tennessee, just two hours from Atlanta, Knoxville, Nashville, and Birmingham, Prosthetic and Orthotic Associates of Tennessee is a worldwide leader in revolutionary and custom prosthetics. And in 2019, I had the pleasure of showing up while Ronnie was only three weeks settled into the new office. That's fun and not disruptive or chaotic at all. So on Friday, we have Carlos coming in for a socket fitting, and we have Walter Carter coming in. Yep, You want me to see if one try to get those health South PT patients in for a shadow that day? Uh, sure. Because the fit of a prosthetic or orthotic device has a huge impact on quality of life, POA is most famously known for its custom approach, patient-first attitude, and getting access to innovative quality care to those who need it most. With the rise of parasports, not just climbing, but running, cycling, and so much more. Globally, we have a greater awareness of those with physical disability. The role of these sports and athletes inspire able-bodied communities to change the way we regard disabilities and what those who have them can accomplish. The prevailing belief in times past was a medical one, based on fear of difference and a perceived need to be normal. But that's changed. Those with disabilities are far more restricted by barriers placed by society than an impairment. But with stories like Ronnie, Jack, Brittany, and countless others we've had on the pod, a shift in perspective has led more people to understanding that all bodies have the right to access and participate in all arenas of life, including sport. Ronnie and the entire POA team are paving the path for more adaptive athletes to run, bike, bound, and blaze down. When it comes to prosthetics, this small but mighty team is helping thousands of people shatter boundaries. And it's all happening here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Oh man, yeah, so we've been in Chattanooga for three weeks now. It's been a total whirlwind, but kind of the fruition of a really big uh, long-term dream and goal for me. And yeah, something that I'm really deeply rooted in and have a really huge connection to. So, you know, to be able to finally be at the point in my career where I can take this next step, open up my own prosthetics clinic that I'm in charge of, you know, in a place that I've always dreamed of being, you know, it's really, really cool. And, you know, you meet a lot of really amazing people through the community and I've been able to kind of bridge everything together where I've got one of my best friends, Andrew Chow, working with me. Um, We've been involved in the adaptive climbing stuff for so long. And then our other two employees, Tyler Lambright and Rob Miller, both really dedicated climbers. So it's kind of cool to bring together people that have a similar vision and mission for what we're looking to do with the business, but that also that we share something, you know, so deeply rooted at the same time as well, you know, helping people. And then also just the simple act of climbing rocks, which, you know, means so much and means so little all at the same time. Okay, I'm on You were listening to the Love of Climbing podcast. It's a funny sense of uncomfortable climbing. I was like, wow, this is the opposite of my podcast, but you know, here we go. <laughs> I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing. Is it to the, or to, do you say to For the Love of Climbing podcast? I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. Yeah, yeah, I see it. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This is not a climbing podcast. Well, sorta. It's a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability. Here's the show. <laughs> Easy cheesy. 
There are a lot of things about Ronnie Dixon that make him so unique. Ronnie's an above-the-knee amputee, but there are a lot of above-the-knee amputees. Maybe it's the fact that he can fall asleep faster than anybody I've ever seen at the crag. Not an exaggeration. Or that he's a climber hailing from the Sunshine State, most famous for its subtropical climate, abundance of sunny weather, beaches, and lack of abundance of mountains. No rocks to climb at all. Raised there my whole life. So I grew up in Central Florida, went to school over in the Tampa Bay area, and then uh, just worked the last nine, ten years of my career over in Orlando, Florida. And uh, yeah, so, you know, that's kind of why, you know, being in Chattanooga is so significant, you know, because for the longest part of my climbing career, I was, you know, so far away from the thing that I loved the most, but you figure out ways to be creative and make it happen. And, you know, I definitely didn't have one of those jobs where you could be gone and freewheeling all the time and be able to freelance. You know, thankfully, my last employers were really flexible and kind of giving me the space and the time that I needed to grow my climbing career as well and to be on four world championship teams and, you know, to travel around and, and do some of those basic things that you need to be able to do to, to grow as a climber. Um, Super fortunate for that. I don't know otherwise how I would have made it in Florida. <laughs> That's for sure. You know, and the gym is cool and everything. I could just never find a way to try hard in the gym. You know, it's like I would almost get fixated on, you know, a root or a boulder and that's what would carry me through like a three to four month period of my life. And yeah, it's weird now, you know, the way that I approach it versus how I did then, but yeah, it almost had to be an obsession-like thing because that was what would keep me almost like alive inside. Because otherwise, yeah, Florida's a killer for a climber, that's for sure. The gym climbing, it's it helps you maintain your form and your physique, but it never, like, nourished me or... Um, yeah, my soul, my psyche, it just never did it for me. Um, and the only reason I gym climb is so I can go climb outside, not the other way around. I don't know that if, if gym climbing was the end all be all, I don't know that I would be a climber. Got to have something outside and like a little bit more connected to something that's real. Okay, y'all, million dollar question. Where is Ronnie's leg? Because be honest, some of you were probably wondering. I uh, had had my leg amputated in June 29th, 2005, after a long-standing battle with a congenital deformity that left my left leg deformed and, and you know, kind of in a, a poorly usable state. Ronnie was diagnosed with a congenital deformity called Trevor's disease when he was five. And what that meant was there was a deficiency in the growth plates in his left knee and ankle, causing them to grow slower than the ones in the right. This meant years of adapting, even before amputation. I mean, adolescent growth spurts are no joke. But when Ronnie made the decision to leave his left leg and old life behind at the age of 19, that's when things changed. And... You know, spent a couple of years, like, just getting active again. Um, you know, I definitely had a really great support system. And just getting back into working out and just seeing the things that I could do and just kind of retesting what this new life was going to be like. And I was at my prosthetist office at the time, so the person who made my legs. And uh, I was flipping through a magazine, and I found an ad for an event called the Extremity Games. And what that was was it was an adaptive sporting competition for people living with limb loss or limb difference. It was happening just a couple of hours from Tampa over in Orlando. 
And um, out of all the events that were listed there, kayaking, BMX bike riding, skateboarding, rock climbing seemed like the coolest to me. Um, I'd never considered it before, but I Googled rock climbing in Tampa and I went with my roommates, I think that Friday, and I just absolutely fell in love with it. I definitely wasn't like naturally good or talented. I don't think most people are, but yeah, I made it to the top of the wall and a few of the easier graded climbs and just knew that it was something that I wanted to continue trying and pursuing and, you know, then competed, you know, only six months after that. Met so many people that were maybe, you know, having a similar situation to myself. I mean, the adaptive scene was really small then. I mean, these competitions, I think that one drew 15 people, three for the bouldering and maybe another 10 to 12 for the uh, rope climbing. And, you know, just for the audience's perspective, like this last national championships that we had last year in Columbus, Ohio, we had 88 athletes. So it's grown leaps and bounds, you know, and even uh, the first team I took to world championships that would have been in 2014, we had 20 athletes participate with us. So things grew pretty, pretty quickly after that. And a lot of dedicated volunteers and other figures in the community were able to take something that really wasn't a thing and make it a thing. Um, part of it was just being in the right place at the right time and just having a really big passion for it. And it was funny enough that summer, right before the competition, I did a study abroad in Italy over in Florence. And because I knew I was training for this competition, I found a local climbing gym, you know, ended up having to figure out how to take the bus like 45 to 50 minutes outside of town to make it there. And got lucky enough that the owner was Argentinian and spoke Spanish, which I speak Spanish from my mom's side. She's from Venezuela. Ended up striking up a friendship with him, was able to make it over there between my schedule of classes and traveling um, twice a week. And then the very last weekend that I was there after this six week study abroad, we went climbing outside for the very first time. And for the most part, minus this guy who spoke Spanish, I couldn't really communicate with anybody else in the group because they all spoke Italian. You know, but it was really cool to get to share this experience in a couple different spots, one bouldering spot, one sport climbing spot that I couldn't tell you the names of if I'd ever tried. You know, I got to go outside and, and see a completely different perspective of the world essentially and of this new sport that was very new to me at the time and I just, that was it. Italy was yet another chapter, a turning point that changed the lens that Ronnie would look at the world through forever. This was where it all started, and Ronnie hit the ground running, so to speak. Most recently, when I was working on doing my first 513, I literally, I saw a weather window, and I woke up in Florida at about 3 a.m., got on the road at 4, got to Alabama after a nine-hour drive and then switching into central time, and went straight to the crag, finally got there at about 3 after I'd unpacked all my stuff and kind of gotten settled a little bit, had some lunch and then fired the project by like six as it was getting dark after a few warm-up goes and everything like that. And actually within that month, I sent two more 513s, another 13A and then a uh, 13B. And it was kind of like the culmination of a whole season or, or longer portion of, of climbing for me where like I finally felt like I integrated as a sport climber. because um, I had spent the first eight, you know, nine years of my climbing career almost exclusively bouldering with some sport climbing mixed in for competitions and stuff like that. But I would have never, ever called myself a sport climber. You know, I was always just getting by, like, supremely pumped the whole time. 
then finally, you know, working with Eric Hurst and, you know, found some treadwall protocols that really started to just pay the dividends and manage routes and recover on routes and things like that. And it totally changed the game because now instead of trying something and just falling off at the same spot, it's almost like for a brief period of time, I felt like the master of my domain where I could run through the moves on something one time and I could almost fire anything within the level that I was capable of doing second go. From that background of bouldering really hard for so long and and just being pretty comfortable with hard moves, but now finally being comfortable with pump management and being able to read a section and be like, okay, when I get here, I'm going to have X amount left in the tank and a little bit of shaking and these tactics will get me through the next part. And finally, just kind of having a method to the madness as opposed to just going through it. And it was almost a two-way street where I knew so much more about it, but it's also kind of right at the point where I'd almost let go of so many things to where I was just climbing to climb. And it was just more just about movement and going through it than it was about anything else. So it became a lot more simple. And even though I'm maybe describing it in a more complex manner, it wasn't like that at all. It just became smoother. So yeah, the the 513 was kind of the culmination of a whole six to eight month period where I was really broaching to see like what the limit of sport climbing was for me at that time. And then that led in quickly into my second 13 and then my 13B. And the 13B was right around where that season ended. And yeah, it was a really good feeling to kind of put so much work into something and then feel it all kind of come together in just like a really extended kind of prolonged flow state. Meeting people where they're at will sometimes require the foresight that there's a lot more going on beneath the surface than we present. Like many successful people climbing elite grades, Ronnie hustled to get to that point. But it's not always what we think it is. And I think there is an interesting parallel to be drawn here between those with more obvious physical impairments, like an above-the-knee amputee, versus those with a less visible disability. Spinal cord injury, traumatic brain injury, Lyme, chronic pain, the list could go on. It's not too far of a stretch to include things like autism spectrum disorder, depression, and learning and thinking differences such as ADHD. Because of their hidden nature, the majority of these conditions will show no obvious sign or symptom to an outside observer. The way a person looks doesn't always reflect how they feel physically, disability or not. For some, it can be an everyday battle just to wake up and get out of bed. Oh man, yeah, I did the drive by myself, only had one stop. So that was probably my longest day, kind of the culmination of all of that obsession. And, you know, that was right around the time where I was starting to see that I had other opportunities in front of me and that I wasn't going to be in Florida for the long term. And, oh yeah, the down that came after that was like super hard. But um, yeah, you hustle and you work really hard. Uh, you know, I can remember on an almost weekly basis, I mean, like I said, my previous employers like really enabled me and really gave me opportunities that I wouldn't have been able to get from anybody else. Um, so I had a climbing wall at work and I had a tread wall at work and a couple of hangboards set up in my office. But yeah, we would start at 8.30, you know, so I'd probably wake up at my house, uh, you know, wake up at five, get to the office at six, session from six to eight, and then be ready to work at 8.30. So yeah, that was part of what made me as successful of a climber as I was for sure. It was just that, that part that people don't see. You see the cool Instagram photo and you, you see all the sending and and I actually have a really hard time opening up in those platforms, but yeah, you work your ass off, but at the same time too, you reap the benefit from it. So it's a two way street. I wanna hit that We're going to take a short break. So don't go anywhere or we're a podcast. You can take us everywhere. 
The scale of climate change can make an individual feel hopelessly small. And Molly Kawahata knows this feeling well. As a former climate advisor to the Obama White House and an alpine climber with dreams of big summits, Molly dedicated her life to taking on seemingly insurmountable challenges. But it's her personal struggle with mental health that gives her a profound understanding of how to harness the power of the mind to create change. The scale of hope follows Molly as she prepares for an expedition in the Alaska Range, while working to create a new climate narrative that centers her favorite question, what can I do to help? It's a story about struggle, hope, and what it will take to solve the greatest issue of our time. Go to patagonia.com slash climbing or visit the Patagonia YouTube channel to watch The Scale of Hope streaming now. Starting at a later age of 19 and trying to figure out where these limits are after I've lost my leg and everything like that. I didn't climb before when I had my leg, but starting something new and just seeing where I could take this line to, yeah, it was always like some sort of goal or some sort of project in mind. Whereas now, you know, it's more about I do it because it makes me feel good. And I think there was a definitely a time in my early climbing career where I, I was just simply too young to understand why certain people could do things that I couldn't do, even though I was maybe physically stronger. You know, and then finally you start to understand movement better and you pay just a little bit more attention and you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense now, you know, after seeing it enough. But yeah, you just keep on trying to find ways to be creative and to invent. And you know, the thing I always liked about climbing is everybody has to learn how their own body climbs. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're able-bodied or, or not. You know, and we all go through that same process. And yeah, we all have an adaptation period. So just started to see the things that I was good at, started to realize what my limitations were, started to realize maybe what limitations were made up by my mind, maybe. You know, like I can't do this because I'm making up an excuse for it. Whereas actually assigning validity to others, like, oh wow, like yeah, because of the way this move is set up, my time is probably better invested elsewhere. Because I, I just simply have a limitation. Is it worth maybe sacrificing my experience of other things to spend all this time on this? And that just takes having a really honest conversation with yourself of, you know, which one is it? And sometimes the answer is gray, but most of the time it's one or the other. You know, it's wow, you know, this just really isn't realistic for me. Or, you know, if you're really that truly psyched about it, if there's some inspirational quality, you know, whether it's the rock quality or whether it's the length or the appearance of the route, you know, it just looks sick and you want to climb it, then well, that's when you throw everything out the window and you figure out a way. And then maybe too, like, ultimately at some point just learning how to like be okay with yourself like wherever you're at and maybe you know if you had a bad day you know at the crag or at the gym or if something didn't go the way you envisioned maybe just not being so judgmental on how that is and beating yourself up because of it now as a climber i'm definitely you know a lot more easygoing and whatnot you know whereas the old me was just trying to figure out a way to get it done all the time and wasn't as forgiving and now 
you know, it's more about I do it like at just whatever level I'm feeling on any given day. Like there's still days when I want to go really hard and other days where maybe I'm climbing V1, but still, you know, just trying to make that be as smooth and as clean and actually like master the craft so that when I am 40 and when I am 50, I can actually still be a better climber, even though I'm maybe not half as strong. And still, you know, taking other people with disabilities out climbing and opening up that world for people that haven't had those experiences because they were so impactful for me that that's still the favorite thing that I love to do. Taking the thing that I love most in the world and sharing it with somebody else. Growing older is inevitable and just another process of lifelong adaptation. For some, it can be daunting, especially as climbers who've spent so much time in pursuit of an athletic objective. Veteran climbers understand from personal experience things like stamina or strength ebb and flow. Those who are in it for the long haul know that love evolves, that giving back to community only deepens gratitude and the power of joy that comes with it. I think you just have to have like a really deep appreciation for things at every stage in the game. You know, and almost approach things, you know, with that same kind of like childlike approach that comes along when you experience something for the first time. We get so desensitized to stuff after we do it for so long. But yeah, these days, I mean, especially being in Chattanooga now, it's definitely rekindled my climbing. You know, the beginning, there's always something special about it. And sometimes you can recapture it and other times you can't. But I like to think that, yeah, you can keep that all the time, yeah. you know, and you should, you know, because if not, you maybe should reevaluate like why. You know, and I think coming from Florida had a really big part to do with that too, you know, because yeah, every time I was out, I was just so happy to be there. And, I, you know, you try your best on any given day. And if it was raining or if it was shitty, that's just how it went. You know, I've always told people like a, a bad day outside is better than your best day in the city. Yeah, sometimes they don't go so great, but it's still better than the alternative. A congenital skeletal abnormality is present at birth. Ronnie lived his entire childhood through adolescent years adapting to the limb deformity, but it never kept him down for long. And the alternative, limited walking and running capability, and pain caused by most physical activity shouldn't have to be a forever option. Not for Ronnie, not for anyone. So fast forward to when I was 10, you know, I had to spend a year in the hospital having a leg lengthening procedure done and they were able to lengthen it six inches and, you know, that got things caught up for a little while. And, you know, I was having this conversation with somebody earlier today, but I just had such a great family and support system that I just remember the good parts, like being at the Shriners Kids Hospital and being surrounded by friends all the time and getting to play video games and things like that. Like, yeah, sure, there was really shitty parts to it, you know, that I remember. But really, when I think about it, my immediate snapshot picture isn't the bad you know and it's funny because you actually you don't have control over what you remember you remember something and typically that presents itself with an image or with a feeling and my feeling isn't negative surprisingly at all and I don't know that that's something I can consciously control or not but yeah thankfully that wasn't like super traumatic or anything like that and, you know, I was on the varsity soccer team and I would get home from practice at night. And I finally got to the point where my mobility was so challenged that I wouldn't be able to walk again until the next day going to school because I was in so much pain. You know, and that's kind of where I started to have this realization, like, you know, you can only do this for so long. You know, something's got to give, you know, so ultimately came up with this plan that, it, you know, since there wasn't anything there that was normal or that they could fix to have my leg amputated uh, above the knee right after my high school graduation. And, you know, that that would open up a whole new world of possibilities for me. Like, I didn't know what those were at the time. You know, like the Internet was a thing like, you know, you did instant messaging with friends and stuff like that. But I didn't like obsessively look up any of this stuff. I kind of just went on faith that I just knew it would be better. But the alternative wasn't very good. Let's just put it that way. So it was pretty easy. <laughs> 
after I had my leg amputated, uh, you know, the short form is that I had a few prosthetic legs. They were still better than my actual leg that I had that was causing me a lot of pain, but I still wasn't reaching the level that I wanted to reach. I was having some discomfort, I would open up sores on my leg uh, every time that I tried to be really active, you know, and that's your quality of life at the end of the day, and I wasn't going to settle until I had the quality of life I knew I could have. So I ended up meeting this guy by the name of Stan Patterson, who made me this prosthetic leg that was phenomenal. You know, it allowed me to compete in my first triathlon, it allowed me to run the distance of my choosing without any pain, it allowed me to climb without my leg falling off. And um, I was going to school for that at the time and took my first job with him in Orlando, and the philosophy in our way of treating patients was really so impactful, you know, not just for me, but that held true across the board for lots of other people as well. So yeah, it basically just devoted the last 10 years of my life to learning that trade, you know, in that very specific way, you know, where we're able to really pay attention to the details and, and make prosthetic legs at a really high quality. You know, we ended up seeing clients that traveled from all across the United States, all across the world from our services because they were better than maybe what they were able to get locally or regionally. So that put me in a really, really good position to be able to, you know, open this clinic with all of that knowledge and base of, of being able to help so many different people. That's the only reason I stayed in Florida, was because I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life, and I knew the only way to get from A to B and to be able to help people to the maximum of my capacity was to become an expert at that. And that's exactly what happened. Ronnie moved to Chattanooga and realized a dream by opening up Prosthetic and Orthotic Associates of Tennessee, a sister company of Prosthetic and Orthotic Associates in Orlando, Florida. So I've still got a really great relationship with our home branch, let's say, in Orlando, Florida, and, and those guys are amazing. And yeah, we're really well positioned to just be here as part of this new community and help anybody who needs it. Part of what we want to bring into it is, you know, we want to bring who we are into the space, you know, and keep it pretty low key. So, you know, take people out in situations that challenge them, whether that's hiking or, uh, you know, maybe trying climbing for the first time, but just, you know, helping people grow along with us and find their challenges and pass their barriers in the same way that a lot of people help me. I like to have the stuff in my life like really deeply interconnected, you know, like it's not like I have my work, then my family and then my friends, like the way that I see it is it's all one unit. And you know, when you can do that, you know, everything kind of works together in harmony, you know, the office set up is we can share that experience with clients and with our patients and the people we take care of. And you know, at the same time, like relive a lot of our experiences that we really had such a good time with that we want to share that with people and just hopefully have it impact their lives the way that it impacted impacted ours. And, you know, some people are really mobility challenged, you know, for one reason or another, and maybe that's an opportunity that will never ever be extended to them. But when they come into this space, I want them to feel like they could almost vicariously, you know, experience some of the things that we've experienced. So, you know, Andrew is a really talented photographer, you know, like having some of his outdoor photography on the wall and being able to share those moments with them and community events that we've done with people and saying like, oh, hey, this is this and this person. And almost using all of these different things and these different props as a way to like recount our story with them and then bring them along on this journey with us. You know, so that if nothing else in, in what could be a difficult existence, just having us be the bright spot in their day. Ronnie and his team at Prosthetic and Orthotic Associates of Tennessee are serving folks in Chattanooga and see patients as far as Atlanta, Birmingham, Nashville, Knoxville, and Western Carolina. 
The difference of a pain-free life and giving patients the freedom to walk, run, and climb is what makes their clinic so special. Climbing is where Ronnie rekindled a passion for having something he could wake up and be excited about. He's since been able to climb mountains, complete a triathlon, ride a bike, run, travel the world. He's a three-time national paraclimbing champion in the male leg amputee division. Sent V10 and multiple 513s, was a founding member of the U.S. paraclimbing program, and has has developed and executed programming such as Adaptive Climbing Group, a nonprofit organization that serves the New York City, Boston, Chicago areas, and beyond, all while helping to support thousands with disabilities to find the tools to accomplish big goals. The world of adaptive sports is changing, and quickly. Ronnie's disability hasn't held him back, but social stigmas that are still caught behind in outdated narratives can. And that's where change comes. It takes a community. So our website is www.poatn.com. So we're Prosthetic and Orthotic Associates of Tennessee. Our Instagram handle is at POA underscore TN. Um, and on Facebook, we're POATN. And if you just generically Google Ronnie Dixon, we've gotten to do lots of really cool projects with Evolve. So like me sending my first V10 Boulder, you know, some other like miscellaneous YouTube videos. Yeah, we've done like adaptive climbing clinics in JTree that Sanook did a video on and Louder and Eleven has a couple of videos out there. So yeah, it's kind of cool to go back and kind of see some of the stuff that we've done and just know that, you know, it's not necessarily about making your future better, you know, because I almost had this this thought the other day. It's like, wow, I literally did so much in the first 10 years. Like I, you know, I don't really know how I could top this. And it's not so much about topping it as much as it is just, you know, staying true with the original intention and trying to create things that are impactful for people. And it's really all you can ask for, you know, whether it's better or worse or the same, you know, it's not my position to judge. Or you could just retire early. Yeah. <laughs> this is Andrew Chow. He, uh, on his business card here at the office, he is a taco assassin. We've successfully eaten tacos almost every night since we've been here. This is one place right by our house since we don't have a kitchen called Taco Town. Really good. Though. Taco Town's good. Been getting these cactus tacos. Ooh, are we uh, talking like $1.25 tacos? Like right around there. It's pretty sick. Yeah, so Andrew has successfully spotted, supported, almost gotten kicked in the face by my prosthesis multiple times while I come flying off of boulder problems. He's uh, potentially just left me hanging on roots for hours on end, just mocking me from the ground and doing all those really great things that a climbing partner should. Hi, for the Love of Climbing community. I'm Al Stone and I'm an adaptive climber in January. 2020, I was rock climbing solo at my local rock climbing gym and definitely will preface this story with that I was at the gym angry um, at my partner at the time specifically and just sort of life changes in general. And I was going in between auto belay and bouldering. Uh, it was a very busy night at the gym. I thought I was clipped in to the auto belay, made it to the top of a pretty difficult route, and I was leaning back to go down on the auto belay, and my life changed instantly. Um, suffered a burst fracture on my T12 vertebra, and I broke my talus bone in my left foot. So my 2020 started off to a rough start right before COVID shut down. So I was definitely new to climbing before my accident, and I was very shy and hesitant to ask for a belay. And 
so now I'm uh, a little over two and a half years post-accident, and I've really been wanting to get back into climbing, but I think my friend circle here, I don't know if it's the combination of they don't think I want to climb because of my accident, or they already all have climbing partners, and oftentimes people will invite someone right in front of me and pretend like as if I'm a ghost and I'm not even invited or included. And just one of those sports that you need a community of people to climb with. And unfortunately, it's one of those sports where obviously advanced climber is not going to want to necessarily go out with a novice and they want to go with someone that they trust, which I get. But then where is the threshold of new beginner climbers wanting to get involved and wanting to learn? And I still consider myself an adaptive climber, but I wish that there were more resources for people like me. Luckily, in the San Luis Valley where I live, there is an avid climbing community and we have some really gem spots outside, but we don't really have an adaptive climbing community. And I came back to this community hoping for more acceptance, and I think it boils down to a judgment call on my ability that others are making for me instead of me making that judgment call. So if you share any of this, I just hope that you get across that adaptive climbers are out there and, you know, they might look like people with nothing wrong with them, but, you know, there could be underlying condition or injury that's just not visible to you. And regardless of visibility or not, this community is here and we're wanting to be a part of the greater climbing community. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Colin, and I'm an adaptive climber based in Atlanta, Georgia. Hi, this is Shane, and I am an adaptive climber. Hey, my name is Miranda Scott, and I'm an adaptive climber. My name is Jean-Tique, and I'm a power climber from London, England, where we call adaptive climbing power climbing. I'm Sarah Bollinger, and I'm an adaptive climber. My name is Lauren Rouse, and I'm an adaptive climber. My name is Melissa Reeves, and I'm an adaptive climber. My name is James Rudge, and I'm an adaptive climber. My name is An. I'm from Chicago, and I am an adaptive climber. My name is Eliana, and I'm a paraclimber. My name is John, and I'm an adaptive climber. My name is Sarah Larkham from Melbourne, Australia, and I'm an adaptive climber. My name is Caroline Winstall, and I'm an adaptive climber. My name is Sarah Bollinger, and I'm a climber. My name is Jean-Tique, and I'm a climber. My name is James, and I'm a climber. My name is Eliana, and I'm a climber. My name is John, and I am a climber. My name is On. I am a climber. And I'm a climber. I am a climber. My name is Tony. I'm an adaptive climber 
So I've got Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder, and it makes climbing a little bit tough, but I still have found a lot of success with being patient and getting super creative. When I was diagnosed, I was told that there was no future for me and I gave climbing a shot and it actually gave me a way better quality of living and maybe on the off chance that I could put my voice out there and maybe help some other fellow Ellers Danlosers who haven't heard any success stories maybe get them to feel a little bit more confident in that you know it's it's not all over <laughs> you're listening to for the love of climbing podcast a huge thank you to Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort. And a big thank you to Gnarly Nutrition for supporting this podcast and the messages that we share. Gnarly Nutrition supports a community of vulnerability and equality and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. A big shout out to LA Outdoor for supporting the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. And to Otsun, innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance. And thanks to Patagonia, not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. Support companies who support this podcast. We couldn't do it without them. If you liked what you heard, you can leave a review on iTunes or give us a like. Like all good things, you can find us on the internet. 